Where's Uncle Robert? And what about Johnny Darrell? And where's Beatrice? And where's R.G.? Now, these were all things that I heard growing up as I walked through our family cemeteries with relatives. These questions were not about the whereabouts of folks who were just running late to a funeral or who hadn't showed up with the fried chicken or deviled eggs for lunch that day. But these were questions about the whereabouts of people who were already dead. And you would hear my relatives as we walked through the cemeteries calling out, where is Robert? What about Johnny Darrell? Where where are they buried? Oh, well, they decided to get their plots over here. He wanted to be next to his dad. And what about his first wife? Where is she buried? These are all conversations walking through the cemetery. Now, early on in life, these names meant nothing to me. These conversations meant nothing. I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know who they were talking about. As my family looked for headstones and names on headstones, and they would go stand and at times decorate the headstones, the, the gravesite, and tell stories. And, and I, I really had no interest in any of these people. But as time has gone on, the names that are called out were so-and-so, are people that I know personally. As history has moved forward, some of these people are uh, people that I officiated their funeral, and I can remember when they were placed in the ground here and there. Just at the last funeral we were at, one of my grandparents' funeral, my sister looked at me and said, where's Aunt Janice? And I was thinking, she died like 20 years ago. Oh, no, where, where is she buried? Oh, she's over here. And I began to think, we are those people now. When we get to the genealogies in the Bible, specifically the genealogies that we're going to look at in the book of Genesis, these names really mean nothing to us at first. We read through them. They're hard to pronounce. Why are they here Someone asked me this week, a couple people asked me this week, are you going to preach through the genealogies? Like, what are you going to do when you get to the genealogies? Well, God wants us to see these names and remember his story. From the first name, Adam, to the last name, he wants us to understand that he is telling a story. He wants us to see how the promise of the story that began in Genesis 3.15, when he said, there's going to be one who will come who will crush the serpent's head. A seed born of woman through the line of Adam will come and defeat sin, Satan, and death. And he wants us to see through these names how he is telling this story, how this story is taking shape. And in Genesis chapter 4 and 5 that we're going to look at today, we find uh, around 2,000 years of history in two genealogies that are placed side by side, that happen simultaneously. We have the generations uh, from Cain to Lamech. And and, and in in chapter 4, we see these seven generations through these names 
And in these names, we see a man-centered hopelessness. And then in chapter 5, we'll see seven more generations from Seth to a man named Enoch. And in those generations, in those names, we see God-centered hope. But last week, we began to see how this story takes off through Cain. And we began to see last week, at the first part of chapter 4, how life out of the garden, after Adam and Eve had been banished from the garden, away from God, cursed with death, separated from the tree of life, separated from the presence of God fully, we began to see how life outside of the garden begins to spiral in hopelessness as Cain allows sin to rule him, and he kills his brother. Not only is man cursed with death, man becomes the agent of death. And Cain was banished to be a wanderer. He was banished to be alone in the world, alienated. But we see in verse 17 that Cain's story turns from a place of wandering to a city of defiance. And so what does the story of Cain look like? What is the seed from the line of Cain? What what are they doing? What are they building? Well, we begin to see in verse 17, a man-centered city. Notice verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enoch. Now, first of all, we remember that Cain was cursed to be a wanderer. He was to be alone in the world. This was the judgment of God upon his life for killing his brother. But here we find he's building a city. And in some sense, Cain is building this city in defiance to God. You want to make me a wanderer? I I, I will build a place for myself. And he builds for himself a city, and notice he names the city after his son Enoch. The word Enoch means to dedicate, to commemorate, and naming cities after men or after your heritage ultimately became a pagan practice. It's something the pharaohs do. It's something the Roman emperors do. And cities become monuments of man's greatness. We think about Babel in Genesis chapter 11. We think about all of the cities of the Egyptians that are built after men, pharaohs, to display their greatness. And this is what Cain is doing here in rebellion to God. And this city is to be in contrast with the garden. In the garden, God is the center. Man walked with God. The garden revolved around God's presence. Here, this city revolves around the greatness of a man. And we'll see that that leads to destruction throughout the story. We know that God will ultimately redeem the concept of a city. But it will be a city where Jesus' name is exalted. And even now, the church is to be a picture of that city. We are to be a city on a hill where the name of Jesus is exalted. So it's not that cities are bad, but this is a man-centered city 
built in defiance to God. And then we see even further how sin and death continue to spiral out of control. We see a distortion of marriage. Notice verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Muhajel, and Muhajel fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. I just said that really fast. You have no clue if I pronounced that correct or not. But notice what happens. And Lamech... This is the seventh generation from Cain, took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And we begin to see polygamy taking place in the Bible. And both of the names of these wives of Lamech, uh, they represent their physical appearance. And I'll let you do some word studies on that. But this is not good. Again, the, the, the physical attributes of these women are emphasized through their names. And we see a man-centered approach to marriage as we see Lamech begins to make it up on his own. And he takes two wives, which is a deviation from what we see marriage was instituted to be in Genesis 1 and 2. It was a covenant. It is a covenant between one man and one woman where they become one in every way. And we know in the Bible that it is to point to Jesus's one love for his bride, the church, sacrificial love. It, marriage is to point to the gospel. But here we see a distortion. And again, we continue to see sin and death spiraling out of control in verse 20. We have a man-centered city. We have a deviation a distortion of marriage, and then we begin to see godless culture. Notice verse 20. And Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So we see the first cowboys in the world right here. Verse 21, and his brother named Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And here we have musicians. Cowboys, musicians, verse 22, and Zillah bore Tubal Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Now, in all of these names, we begin to see culture that is formed. We have agriculture, we have arts, we have science, we have technology, we have iron workers, musicians, and those who work in the field. But what do we notice by these names. None of these things are bad. We would look at them and say none of them are rebellious. But there's a point Moses is making here as he records this. None of these identities have anything to do with God. None none of these have anything to do with the promises of God. As we move throughout Scripture, the, the line of Seth And we move through his line. Men are named after the promises of God. Prayers from God in light of their relationship with God. Here there are just godless identities. Men who are named after their achievements. What they do, not who they are. And we see a godless culture. And then in verse 23 we see man-centered pride. Sin and death continue to spiral out of control. This is where the line of Cain is leading. 
And it culminates in man-centered pride. Verse 23, in Lamech, back to Lamech, he said to his wives, his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. We even see the pride there and the way he's referring to himself. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man. He refers here to a boy. I killed just a boy. And what did he do? He struck me. Well, Lamech, why did you do that? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, this is what God said, anyone who kills Cain, the justice will be sevenfold, then Lamech's will be 77-fold. And so what's going on here? You see how corrupt the seventh generation of Cain is. He is glorifying himself. This playboy with two wives, he openly mocks God. He releases the first song with parental warning, explicit lyrics. He's exalting himself and he's glorifying violence. He said, if God would avenge Cain's death, I will avenge my own death. There's a boy that just bumped into me. And you know what I did? I killed him just to watch him die. That's what I did because I am Lamech. And he is exalting himself. He, he, he takes great pride in himself. And so as we get to this point in chapter 4, we see that as sophisticated as man is, city, culture, music, science, technology, songs, poetry, as sophisticated as man is, he is no less wicked and even more prideful about his wickedness. And we're to get to this point, we're to say, what hope is there? Is there any hope in man? Is there any hope in man himself? What will man in the condition of sin make of the world around him? Well, he'll make a mess out of it. He will exalt himself. He will glamorize pride and violence and have a disdain for life and justice. He will deviate from God's design for marriage. And so is there any hope in the world? Well, notice verse 25. We see a God-centered hope. And Adam knew his wife again. Now, as we make our way through chapter 4, we see the transitions. Adam knew his wife. And then we see that led to tragedy in the beginning. And then we see Cain knew his wife. That led to wickedness upon wickedness. But notice here in verse 25, God redeems the story. God, God in some sense, starts the story over. There's been death and violence and wickedness. And so God steps in and notice Eve bore a son and called his name Seth. Now Seth's name means new beginning. And it is in contrast to any other name in this chapter. It refers to what God has done. So we see a God-centered name. Instead of man-centeredness, we see God-centeredness here. And notice she says... God has appointed for me another offspring. Now remember as the chapter began, the way Eve talked about her first son, I got a man with God's help. 
and it was centered on what she had done. But here, no, no, God has done something amazing. After tragedy, He has brought another life into this sin-cursed world with death. God has done this. God has provided new life, a new beginning. And notice she says, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. When Abel was murdered, you imagine in Eve's mind the promise. There's one who's going to come through you who will crush the serpent's head. You are the mother of all living. And all of the hopes are dashed. And yet God steps in here and redeems the story. That the promise cannot be stopped. The promise God made to Eve of life. And one who will destroy the serpent. It moves forward. And Eve praises God here. This is a God-centered life and birth. But notice verse 26. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. Now, this is another God-centered name. Because Enosh means frailty. And it means weakness. And so we see from the line of Cain, there is pride. There is is this trusting in man's strength and ability on his own. We see this man-centeredness. And here, there is a new beginning. But this new beginning in the name of Enosh emphasizes man's weakness. And here's where we see the story moves in a different direction, a better direction toward God. When man understands his weakness, he is moved toward God. And we see the line of Cain is moving toward God and understanding we are frail and we are weak. And notice what happens. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, seeing that God had stepped in and has changed the narrative. Seeing that, that, that man is weak and understanding this, they, they begin to call on the name of the Lord. You see, Seth's line understands something. That it is about God. That we have made a mess out of the world as sinners cursed with death. We are weak. We are frail. And now there are men who are calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name the reputation, the fame of the Lord, what he is known for. What is he known for? He is strong. He is mighty. You see, Cain's line exalts the name of men. Seth's line exalts the name of God. And it presents before us today two choices. You can trust in the strength of men as the world spirals out of control in wickedness. Or you can hope in the strength and name of God. That's the choice before you today. As you look at the world around you. And it just seems to get worse and worse and worse every day. The question for you is what are you going to hope in? Are you going to hope in man's ability to fix it? Are you going to hope in sophistication, technology, our strength? Or are you going to hope in God? And this is where happiness resides in your life. If you wake up every day like the line of Cain, and you say, I'm going to build a name for myself. I can do this on my own. 
I can create an identity for myself. And whatever little circle I'm in, I can exalt myself and I can achieve things that'll make me happy, that'll make me successful, that'll fix my problems. And you begin to exalt yourself. The same thing is going to happen in your life. You're just going to continue to spiral out of control. You're going to realize you can't control it. You can't fix your greatest problems. And this is the reason so many of us are hopeless today. We spend our days scrolling for some sort of man-made solution, some sort of man that's going to fix the economy and keep us safe and and maybe build a village on Mars or we can get away from this place. And we're looking for some sort of man to fix it. Well, the point here is man can't fix the greatest problem. We're, we're, we're like that kid when, we, when, when they've marked on the wall. It would be like going to a kid. They've marked on the wall with marker. And you say, you, you bring them some drywall. And you bring them some putty. And you bring them some paint. You see this wall, son, where you've marked all over it with the Sharpie? I want you to cut this section out of the wall out. Here's, here's, here's a dry, drywall knife, and then I want you to replace it, and I want you to put putty around it. I want you to sand it down where no one can ever tell that this mark was ever on the wall, and then I want you to paint over it. What's going to happen if you, if you tell a child to do that? He's going to make a bigger mess. And you're going to come into the room and it's going to be destroyed even worse, probably cut out with jagged edges and and the problem's just going to look worse and worse and then he's going to have paint all over himself. And this is what we look like as sinners trying to fix our greatest problems, as weak, frail humans, creatures trying to make the world a better place trying to grab hold of things we can't fix and we can't control. We just make a bigger mess out of it. But notice the hope here. The hope in looking to God in our weakness and saying, no, we are sinners and we are frail and we can't fix the problem. And God would say in Genesis chapter 4, you don't have to fix the problem. Because I'm telling a story. And it's a story of new beginnings. But it's a story that begins in admitting your weakness, admitting your frailty. And what we see in Genesis chapter 4 is God's plan to crush the serpent's head. God's plan and purpose is just to keep bringing life into the world. And ultimately, eternal life cannot be stopped. It cannot be killed. Abel is dead, but the promise of God continues to move forward. And as the people of Israel entered the promised land and they read Genesis chapter 4, they are to see that very clearly. As they see the names of Cain to Lamech and they see the mess men create in the world. And then they see the line of Abel who is dead and then Seth. God redeems the story. And they're to remember in times when they are in Egypt in bondage. The story's not over. God will continue to tell the story. Or what about when they rebel against God and they are exiled to Babylon? Well, God's going to continue to fulfill his promises. And and what about when the church is persecuted by the most man-centered of all? 
the Romans. What are they to remember? The promise can't be killed on a cross either. We see hope in God's story and seeing the world with God at the center. You see, the cities of men, they will fall. Their pride will be crushed, but the promise of God moves forward. So if you want hope today, I got a, I got a plan for hope for your life. First of all, pray a lot. The reason some of you are so hopeless is because you're trying to fix your problems instead of praying to God, who's going to do what he said he would do, understanding his promises and looking to him to fulfill his promises. Pray a lot and then worship a lot. What happens in worship? Well, we are reminded Sunday after Sunday that Jesus got up out of his coffin and he is seated at the right hand of God. That is what worship is to do for us. We see here, Seth's line begins to call on the name of the Lord and that is how we have hope. We are weak, but God, you can fix our problems. We are frail, but God, you have raised your son from the dead, and you are ruling and reigning, and your story moves forward. You want hope. This is what you do, pray and worship. And then latch your life to the one thing Jesus said the gates of hell cannot defeat. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The promise can't be killed. The promise can't be murdered. Death can't defeat the promise of God. And and we see it here in Genesis 5. As the seed just moves forward through life, the promise moves forward. And we see that in this room today as the church is gathered. 2,000 years after the crucifixion, the promise keeps moving forward. And you are to latch your life and all of your agendas to Jesus' mission for the church and the world. If you want hope, that's what you do. Oh, the, the world just keeps dead-ending. The plans of men just keep falling apart. We, we keep throwing drywall and paint all over the place. Oh, the mission of God in the church keeps marching forward day after day after day. So if you want hope, latch your life to the promise of God. Chapter 5. We see hope in a world cursed with sin, death, and wickedness. And in chapter 5, we see faith in the face of death. And some of you are like, we're just now in chapter 5. We have the Lord's table today. My table at Cracker Barrel. I hope somebody can get there before me. Genesis chapter 5. Notice verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Here, God or, or Moses goes back to start the story over, and he's going to give us the, all of the names, all of the generations. And he begins with Adam. And he said, when he created man, he made him in his likeness, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man or humanity or mankind when they were created. And we're reminded that man was created to have dominion, to know God face to face, to obey God. See, Adam failed in that. And so look at verse 3, when Adam lived a hundred and 30 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so God created Adam without sin to know him, to obey him, to rule and reign. Adam was sinless. And a point 
that is being made here is when Adam had his son Seth, he was in his father's likeness. Yes, he is to have dominion and he is to know God, but he also inherits Adam's sin nature. And then we see the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. Now, one of the points we need to make is pre-flood, it seems as though humans lived longer and on average had about 30 kids. And by the time Adam died, there were millions that populated the earth. Before the flood, billions that populated the earth. Notice the text continued. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And he died. And he died. So, so created in God's image, God's bringing life into the world but we're reminded here, death is still in the world. And, and the first man God created dies. He dies. And we're reminded of the curse that Adam separated himself from God spiritually. And then he was cursed with death physically, banished from the garden, banished from the tree of life. And if he doesn't hope and trust in God, he would be banished to hell forever. We're reminded of the curse, and he died. Those words remind us of the curse of death. And then we begin to see them throughout the chapter. As Moses begins to document all of the deaths of these men, down in verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and notice, and he died. And then verse 11, Enosh, his days were 905 years and he died. Kenan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalahala, whatever, were 895 years. And I tried to say it really fast and it got hung up. Man, some of you are wondering what's wrong with him today. I was rehearsing all these names in my mind. I missed one. And he died. Ultimately, that's what that name means. And he died. Then verse 20, Jared, 962 years and he died. What are we seeing here? And he died. The curse of death. And he died. It continues to ring forward in this monotonous refrain. And he died. And while the image of God is passed down, the curse of death is passed down as well. You know, it's good for us to remember our mortality. We live in a time where we're trying to just kind of push that away. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of mental health issues. And thinking of death, we are told, makes that worse. And a lot of people are stricken with fear constantly over death. And one reason we are is because we avoid the subject and we don't face it head on. I, I know when you hear Toby Keith and the guy who invented the Pop-Tart and the Homecoming Queen and Apollo Creed, and when, when you read those names day after day after day, for some of us, we, we're, we're struck with fear. But the response isn't to push that away. The response isn't to ignore death. Death is a reality. And until you face it, I didn't get anything from Toby Keith or the Pop-Tart guy. 
But until you face the reality, you're going to be racked with fear and anxiety. No, we are to face it head on. Notice, and he died, and he died, and he died. And God wants us to understand that is a reality for every man cursed with sin. And you better come to terms with it. Because there's hope in the face of death if you understand it. Notice we get down to verse 23 and the story of death changes. Thus all the days were Enoch, 365 years. And then notice verse 24, he walked with God and was not for God took him. Notice the change. And he died. And he died, and he died, walked with God and was not. God took him. There's a different story for Enoch. And notice how he's described. He walked with God. The word walked, it means to walk back and forth. It's almost the picture of someone pacing all the time. And so what's the point of that word picture? Enoch always walked with God. God was always on pace with Enoch. They were always walking together. And it harkens back to the garden. The last time we heard of someone walking, what was it? They heard the Lord walking in the garden. And what did they do? Walk with the Lord? No, they hid from him. They hid from him. And then they are banished from the Lord. And then we see Cain, even further, is banished to wander alone. He is to be alone in the world. But here we have hope in Enoch who walks with the Lord. The walking with the Lord that was known in the garden is restored to this one man, Enoch. And there's abrupt change here. God just takes him. And we really don't know why the prophet Elijah was taken in the same way. We kind of have a picture of the rapture. The flood is coming. A few chapters before this judgment, Enoch is raptured out. But here we have the seventh generation of Cain, Lamech the wicked, now the seventh generation of Seth who walks with God. There was an Enoch... In in Cain's line, in a, a, a city was dedicated to his name. Now this Enoch in Seth's line is dedicated to the Lord. You see how God is flipping the script? You see how the story is changing? Do you see the hope here? A man who did not see death. All the men are dying. All peoples, and he died, and he died. He was not because the Lord took him. It's it's a powerful picture of God's grace in the story. But notice what we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, why Enoch was taken. Remember the passage, or you can turn there. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he should not see Death. He was not found because God had taken him. And why is that? 
before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. God took him to himself because he lived a life that pleased him. And what do we know about this life? He walked with God all the days of his life. And God took him. But what did it mean for him to please God? Notice the text continues. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. It's not that Enoch just lived a good life. It's that he lived a life of faith. And what was his faith? He says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and rewards those who seek him. So what did his, what did his life that pleased God look like? It was a life of faith. What did his faith look like? It was a faith that drew near to God. It was a faith that sought God. And it was a faith that was rewarded. Now we immediately think he was rewarded in that he did not see death. No, no, no. Notice his faith. He was drawing near to God. The reward of Enoch's faith was God. He got what he drew near to. He got who he sought after God. He had a faith that said, God, you exist. Even in this world that is out of control, sin, death, wickedness, the pride of man, you, you exist. And, and I want to know you. I want to pursue you. And he, he, he remembered the promises that had been passed down from Adam, passed down to Seth, passed down to him. And he sought after God by faith. And he was rewarded by being taken to be with God. And that same promise is for you today. As we live in a world that is just so insane, ludicrous, crazy. And we look at it and we say, what's going to fix it? Jesus, that's it. But even now, for the one who would believe, there is someone bigger than all of this that created me. And would trust in his word and draw after him, seek after him, you can be rewarded with God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus, his cross and resurrection, having your sins forgiven through the payment on the cross for your sins, being covered in his righteousness. That is the only way you can draw near to God, by the way. Your efforts won't get you there, it's only by faith in Christ. His death for your sin and His righteousness. And you can stand before God as if you never sinned. You always obeyed as if you are Christ. And so you draw near to God through Christ. And Jesus would turn to you and say, If you've been forgiven of your sins, you're covered in my righteousness. You will not see death. Like Enoch, you will be taken. Even when you're absent from the body, you will be present with the Lord. Now God's going to raise that body up. But for the one in Christ, you will not see death. And that is the hope of our faith. But, but the point and the reward of our faith is the same as Enoch. See, a lot of times we believe the gospel because we just want to escape death and hell. Okay, if I recite this prayer and I go through this, then, then, then death's not as scary anymore and I get to go to heaven. No, the reward of Enoch's faith was God himself. 
And I wonder if that's what you want, is God. I wonder if He is enough. And your faith is, He is enough in this world, in my success, in my struggle. Do you have faith that says, God is enough. He rewards. He is pleased with that faith. Not just a faith that says, death is scary and I want to go to heaven. No, faith that says, I need God. And He's the only one that can fix my greatest problems. And if this is your faith, you will draw near to Him now. If that is the nature of your faith in God, you will walk with Him as Enoch walked with Him. By the word and prayer, by the power of the Spirit, you will get up every day and you say, where are we going? You will want to walk with God. Trusting He is with you day in and day out. When you are confused, when you are alone, when you are scared, you will remember God is walking with you. You are walking with God. You see, during Enoch's time, walking was transportation. You walked to wherever you went. And you always had someone with you. And you walked and you talked. And that is the picture of his faith. And that is to be the picture of our faith. Walking with God all the days of our life. Every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. I am walking with God. He is living with me by the power of his spirit that indwells me through the gospel. You got to see your life this way. One of the things I want you to do this week, as you are walking, take the earbuds out or put them in because then people won't talk to you. But turn the music off, turn the podcast off, and just walk and pray. Just, just remind yourself as you're walking to class, God, you are with me, and pray. Use the times you're walking to pray. Walking through the neighborhood with the stroller, with the kids, across campus. Remind yourself you are walking with God in Christ. And one of the things that I notice as time ticks away, I'm not just talking about the sermon, in the world, in life, is those who walk with God constantly, they don't dread death anymore. Death becomes an anticipation for them. The more they walk with God, the closer death gets, they begin to anticipate this. Because their faith is about to be sight. And they're drawing in to the reward of their faith. Like the Apostle Paul, they say to live as Christ. Guess what? I've been redeemed. I have the Spirit of God. I have the Word of God. I have prayer. I can walk with Christ daily. To live as Christ yet to die is gain. Because I'm not just going to walk with him by the Spirit. I'm going to be with him in his presence. And those who walk with God, this anticipation builds. Their faith is going to become sight. And they have faith in the face of death. You see, that's the radical hope that the line of Seth is going to bring us in the story of the Bible. Because we ultimately get to one name that does mean something in your cemetery. Walking in this world, this valley of death's shadow all around. And sometimes it's so hard and it's so difficult and you look around and you say, where's Jesus? 
Where's Jesus? Oh, you're talking about the one that was here, buried, and now is not? Because he was taken in a resurrection, raised from the dead? Where's Jesus? Oh, he's walking with you in the face of death. 